It's such good shit. So I know we're going to talk about it, but did you guys hear the the backstage information about MJF throwing liquid at that kid? <laughs> no, please yeah. share. So it was not a plant, and that was also not water. It it was apparently tequila, <laughs> and it <laughs> got in the kid's how, eyes. How did they get tequila in there? <laughs> apparently, the they sell it there. I don't Which know. I would, if I was the mom, I'd be pissed that my $20 fucking margarita got thrown in my kid's face. Not because it got thrown in my kid's face, but because it was a $20 fucking margarita. I think this is one of the best things that's happened to the business in years. Really? Yeah, I think you, we we gotta stop telling our wrestlers to not be men. Sometimes it's called being a man. You just gotta go throw shit, not give a fuck about the consequences. Are, is this Gilead? What, what the fuck? No, I just think it's... it Wrestling becoming like a nerd-centric thing has been really bad for the business. So having, you know, douchey alpha male heels throwing shit at kids is good. In a broader sense. I'm all for him throwing shit at a guy... Or an adult woman, but throwing shit at a child, like, like, look, with kids, you can take their popcorn away because they can give them more popcorn. You can tear their poster up because they can comfort them with a free t-shirt. But you can't splash fucking tequila in a kid's face. Well, he probably didn't know it was tequila. And no, let's assume did. it was water, or it, that he thought it was water. Mm-hmm. That It might have upset the kid in the moment, however... That's going to be an awesome memory for that kid for years now. It's like MJF threw something at me on this pay-per-view. I just want to contrast this event with in the same week we had uh, Liv Morgan. uh, A little kid was crying at ringside after she lost her match. So they invited the kid to come backstage and like meet Liv and get a hug from her and sign autographs and take pictures. Yeah, that's what your baby faces are for. I think Brian should go, you know, hug that kid after the show and give him a T-shirt and an action figure or whatever. But MJF shouldn't apologize or visibly give any fucks. I think he should keep kayfabing this thing. MJF is one of the only, and we've talked about this before, he's one of the only guys in the industry that truly keeps kayfabe alive. There's some degree of it everywhere. But he's the guy that no matter what, you can't tell what's real or what's not. Everything feels like it's real for him. He's one of the only guys that does it. Yeah, and maybe that's a better way of explaining the sentiment that I was trying to get across earlier when I said, you know, sometimes you just got to be an asshole. I, I think you, you know, you presented the the argument a little better right there. So. I hate to point this out, but I mean, it does feel nearly impossible for somebody of MJF's level to keep kayfabe for this long and this consistently. He might just genuinely be a shitty guy. Like, there's there's every chance that he's just actually a fucking asshole. And what? So what? Yeah, no, just it, that just might be the case. He's providing a good or service in exchange for money. 
So yeah, and so should we just lead directly into our AEW Revolution? I guess really MJF Daniel Bryan review or conversation. Yes, but let me do the intro because I'm sure somebody will be pissed if we don't. This is such good shit. A wrestling podcast where the three of us who are brothers get together and talk about all the things that make professional wrestling such good shit. Okay, let's talk about AEW. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, boy, was this some such good shit this week. <laughs> um, for those of you who didn't watch the pay-per-view uh, because AEW doesn't give out premium live events for free, uh, Brian Danielson and MJF had a 60 minute Iron Man match, 60 minute plus, I should say, um, in which they tore the house down and probably had the match of the year so far. Man, no, we're only three months in, but I think this is easily the best match of MJF's career. Uh, they really pulled out all the stops, and this is one of the first Iron Man matches I can remember having multiple falls. Right, because I think it ended up the match. It was four three to finish. They they were tied three three, and then they had to go to a tiebreaker. You rarely see that many finishes in an Iron Man. And the other element that I thought was really creative is that there was no reset on the clock. So MJF, like a good kayfaber, uh, was like, "Well, I'm just going to pin Brian multiple times in a row at one point." Because he had him down. It's like, why don't I just keep pinning him? And he did and got two wins back to back. Right. It's what you, it's what you do in the video games because it makes sense to do it. If the guy is right. beaten bad enough at that stage to get the pinfall, why couldn't you pin him a second time? Yeah, I think in recent years, WWE has written away the way that they do it. So that like both men have to get back to their feet before the next uh, fall can like, you know, occur, which is fine. I like that. Yeah, it's a fine way to do it. I prefer this way, though. I think it's more interesting. Well, and they called it out during the intro, so I knew that was going to come into play at one point. Um, But it's the kind of thing where if you do it consistently, it'll kind of not be on the radar in the future. You know, if they always have the rules of their Iron Man matches consistently like that. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I think, Matt, what you said was a good... Um, a good descriptor of the match as a whole. It just made sense. Everything made sense. Uh, and I think that's kind of what uh, MJF probably does the best out of anything in his in-ring work is just the logic. Yeah, I mean... Uh... <laughs> He doesn't do things to just do things. Everything has a, p- a purpose. Every move he does, there's a reason behind it. There's logic behind it. And you never feel like he's doing moves to just do a move. You know, he's he's either trying to gain uh, the one-upsmanship on the, on the person. He's trying to do damage to the person. Whatever the case may be. But he doesn't just do a thing because, oh, it's really fucking cool when I do this fucking flippy thing. Right, he doesn't do that. He does things with a purpose, which is very old school. He's one of those guys that wrestles less like he's an entertainer and more like he's actually a fighter. And I would argue that wrestling is kind of lacking in people that do that right now. I think maybe my one criticism of MJF. So 
uh, he kind of had this big reveal where he takes off the robe and he was absolutely fucking juiced to the high heavens. Uh, all the commentators were instantly like, look at his body and they made a big deal about it. Um, guy has got to be roided into oblivion, which is fine. You, you want your wrestlers to look scary. Um, I felt like his movement or in general, he felt kind of unathletic in this match, which was something I picked up on. I wonder if he's getting too big for his frame. That's so I noticed that during this match. I've noticed that occasionally with MJF. He's a little stilted um, with his movements. He's not. So one of his biggest influences is Triple H, right? He's admitted to that repeatedly. But Triple H is very smooth. He's always been very smooth between moves, between setups, etc. But MJF is kind of a little stilted. And granted, look, MJF's only been doing this for a handful of years. So I think that's maybe one of those bits of polish that if he was in a WWE, that that would kind of get rounded out a little bit better. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder. I mean, it's even like the way he hits the ropes is a little stiff, you know? Um, it's little things like that, or the way he moves around the ring. I think you're right. Like, Triple H is kind of the master at that, or Randy Orton's another great example of a guy who just moves around the ring in a way that's really smooth. Um, I don't know. I wonder if it's inexperience or, or bloat. You know who else is a little stilted when they're in the ring? Uh, is Cena. Cena had yeah, n- not always, but a lot of times. Cena's a little more. You know what I would I would uh, the best way to explain this is when you're watching a video on YouTube and you watch it at uh, the standard thirty frames, right? And there's the movement is there, but it's a little choppy. Or you watch a video that's at sixty frames. And it's nice and super smooth. And I think that's kind of what it's like. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's almost the physical equivalent of the the microphone thing where it's like certain guys, you can it just feel scripted and other guys feel like they believe what they're saying. It's almost mm-hmm. the exact same thing, but. It's the, the movement version it's like of they're that. They're believing the way they're moving. It's intense. <laughs> like they're trying to win a fight. You know what I mean? Well, and yeah, and okay. From someone who's been in the ring before, I can tell you that there is a, a bit of that where sometimes you're in the ring and you're moving because you know in your head, I need to, I need to go to from here to here because of the spot. I know what's coming up. I need to get in the right place or. You know, we planned out we're going to do X, Y, and Z, so I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Whereas if you're um, a little more comfortable with it or you're just listening to the crowd and you're kind of calling it as you go, it's more natural. It's more, hey, this is a real thing that's occurring and less of I'm remembering steps and playing them out. Yeah, it's that that thinking about your steps versus executing them, just doing them. Uh, One criticism I have for the match is the finish. Um, Look, I love, I love the fact that MJF won. I think that was the right call for sure. And they did a really good job of making me feel like Brian could win. 
Yeah, that last false finish was one of the best false finishes of the year. Yes. Of, of many years, maybe. Like, that was as but, close as I've come to buying into a false finish as of late. Right. My issue was, so they, the bell rings with MJF tapping out as soon as the bell rings, which great fucking heel work, right? He hung until the bell, taps out like a little bitch. Immediately, paramedics swarm the ring and start cleaning off the blood and everything, which, okay. But one of the fucking paramedics has an oxygen tank for no fucking reason other than to have an oxygen tank. And as soon as I saw it, I said to myself, self, this is a spot coming up. It certainly felt that way. Yeah. And then we go through the whole thing of Tony Schiavone being on the headset, but also talking to Tony Khan, which was at first I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool way to do it of, hey, no, yeah, I got you, Tony. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll go relay the info. But then when he gets down to the ring and goes to Justin Roberts, you can see that Justin Roberts also has an earpiece in. So why the fuck didn't Tony Khan just help Justin Roberts? Yeah, or Tony could have just called it from the announce desk, just picked up a microphone and announced into the arena. Sure. Like, the act of him walking down gave you time to analyze how stupid the situation was. There was, so from the moment that the... the tank and all that stuff, too. From the moment the first, the final bell, first bell, whatever you want to call it, when the timer ran out, everything felt overbooked. It, It almost felt like when you're a kid and you're playing with your wrestling toys and you do something, and you're like, okay, ring the bell, the match is over, and then, wait, Goldberg's here, and now Goldberg comes out and spears everybody. Wait, wait Hogan, (laughs) Hogan's here, and Hogan does, right? And you just keep doing a bunch of stupid shit. That's what this felt like, because you have this whole thing with Tony Schiavone going down to the ring to tell Justin Roberts, who also has an earpiece, what the fuck to do, instead of them just, whatever. Okay, fine, so we restart the match. Everybody scatters so they can start the match. But the fucking oxygen tank casually just gets rolled to the front of the ring. I'm like, all right, cool. And then at one point you have MJF go to the outside and just sort of sit against the apron, just sitting there. And this is what I was pissed about. It's not the fact that he went out there and saw the tank and goes, oh, I'm going to use this. It's the fact that Brian, for no fucking reason crawled over to MJF from the middle of the ring so as to be hit with the tank instead of getting up and walking over to retrieve MJF. It didn't make sense. He didn't have to do it either. He could have just stepped through the ropes and MJF could have just whacked him in the hip or something. Like it didn't have to be him poking his head out like a fucking whack-a-mole. But he could have done it even if Brian walked over, MJF still could have gone up behind you. I mean, this is a podcast. So you can't see what I'm doing. You can hit up behind you, and it would have the same exact effect. But the way that they made it happen just felt overbooked. Well, it had to be in a way to where the ref wouldn't be able to see it, which I appreciated <sighs> that they did that as opposed to just yes. burying the ref. Then maybe Brian should have gone outside and got hit. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those things where I think somebody had a good idea when they were laying out the match. Um, and it was a lot of and then and then and then. But then when it actually came time to execute it, 
nobody thought through like practically how this was. Why gonna the work fuck out. is Hulk Hogan here now? Oh well, it doesn't right. matter. But let's not bury the lead here. It was a really quality wrestling match and a quality yes. main event, and it it's just like one of the things that makes wrestling such good shit. So I didn't want to miss the opportunity to give them their props on that front. Yeah, and in the rest of the show was good too. I mean, I didn't get to see all of it, but like Hangman and Moxley was good. Um, there was some of the shit going on with the revival the return. The revival fucking return. I'm sorry, FTR's FTR. return. Yeah, which I like them. I'm a big fan of them. Yeah, they're about as good as it gets from a uh, tag team. I will say I'm kind of disappointed they went back to AEW because I don't know that they ever actually left, but the fact that they returned instead of going elsewhere, because I feel like there's not, I feel like they could do more in WWE now with the teams that are there now. Um, and they would be a pillar of that division versus when they left, when they were kind of like a laughing stock. The problem with the return to W. So in theory, I think you're right. But in practice, what what would happen in WWE is they would just be misused. Like, they would be booked strongly, but they'd be misused in the sense that WWE doesn't put a premium on their tag team wrestling, right? So, like, I think it would be all Sunshine and Rainbow's fantasy booking, and I'm sure their contract offer would be really appealing, but I think if they actually want to do good work, AEW's probably the place. I mean, it's going to be exciting to see them work with the Gun Club, and then eventually them and the Acclaimed is going to be a really big deal. So I think they've kind of got two good programs lined up right off the bat. And then there's also the uh, potential Young Bucks match that hopefully we'll finally get at some point. So I think there's a lot of good meat on the bone there still. Yeah, that's what I was going to get into. I I wouldn't be surprised if they run amok of the Young Bucks sooner rather than later, because I think the purpose of taking those trio titles off of the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega was Kenny Omega is likely the next challenger for MJF going forward, and the Young Bucks can now get back into the main tag division, which I think desperately needed the Young Bucks and FTR, because not that there's anything wrong with the Ass Boys and the Acclaim, but that that they've been doing that for a bit. It's time to get some more stuff going on. And those are two really big teams to do it. Uh, I yeah, I don't want to lose the, sight of the acclaim, I, though. No, no, of course not. Um, I do like the idea of, you know, the rumors of CM Punk hopefully coming back, that that would be what's best for MJF. But I, I have a feeling that that's not what's going to happen. And I, I don't know that CM Punk is coming back. Yeah. Let's go there next, because you brought up Kenny Omega being the likely next challenger for MJF. Do we think that that's likely, A, and B, do we think that that's a good move? I think it's likely because, let's be honest, Kenny's time with the company is... He's been with the company longer than he will be with the company at this point. And I think that's a known thing. And I think if you want to get the most out of your one of your biggest stars, you, you use him in the biggest way, which is 
putting him up for the title match and look, let him job out. Not, I'm not gonna say job out. That's a bad term. Cause you, when you're a star at that level, losing to another star at that level, that's not jobbing, right? But helping put over MJF as a, a major talent on his way out. And I'm not saying that, okay, Omega's done in two or three months, but while he's on the downswing of his AEW career, have him put over the new guy. Again, I think in theory, you're right, but I don't know practically how over Kenny is as a babyface at this point and what kind of value he's going to have to MGF lose it. Like, has he, is Kenny built up enough at this time to, to go take on MJF and have it mean something? So here's the thing with AEW that's different from WWE. You don't have to necessarily build a guy like Kenny Omega up because the fans just eat up his shit when he walks through the door. So him just showing up on Dynamite or Rampage or whatever the fuck and cutting a promo and challenging MJF, that's all the fuck that's needed to to get him at that level. Right, for the, you know, for the half a million fans that watch AEW every week, but I think this is a pitfall of AEW what you just said. They do that a lot and they don't properly flush out stories and build kind of oh sure i'm not saying it's the right way to do it i'm just saying that's how they're gonna do it and it's their way yeah i don't disagree with that i think they will do it that way because they always do so do we agree though that it is a bad decision to just throw him into that feud right now yeah i brought it up because i think that that's likely what they're going to do i that does not mean that i think it's the the best idea um it's hard to remember, but when Kenny Omega left from his injury, he was the hottest thing that they had other than the fact that CM Punk had just shown up. The only thing is, is that he came back and I get that it's cool to see the elite all doing something together and they were a really good um, group of guys to build up these new titles that they probably don't need, but that wasted Kenny Omega for a year. Like, no, no offense, but there's just really it was a very odd choice to not have him back in the title picture right away when he came back because he would have had all the momentum in the world and he left as the biggest star in the company at the time. Um, to now you have to try and convince us that he still is that guy that came out in the suit acting like he was literally God of the ring. I don't it's going to take a while for me to buy that again. And there's a very real possibility here that MJF, Brian Danielson was getting booed about 50, 50 in this match. Um, and now granted, as the match got going, they told the story in a way to where the fans were completely behind Brian, but kind of in the introductions, MJF was getting mixed reaction. They run the real risk of MJF flipping baby face if you put him with Kenny the way MJF talks I think he'll eat Kenny up on the mic like I just don't feel like it's a good pairing for where both guys are at I just I don't know who you do it with I think right now despite the the fact that MJF is a nuclear heel and what he does is so shitty it's so entertaining that people just can't not cheer for him and there just isn't anybody else at MJF's level. Yeah, I think Adam Cole is the one. 
they're not ready to go there yet. They if they would have had Adam Cole get back into the ring two months ago when he returned, he might be ready for for that feud. But yeah, and I think that's really what they need is they need a young guy who is incredibly entertaining and incredibly popular, who has not been at the top level yet, that they would desperately want to see reach the the brass ring. Well, and so and why that's they just... really the only option that you got. I don't even think Punk gets sheared against MJF. I so why don't they just do the thing where you feed all of our favorites to MJF for the next six months while you build up Adam Cole, right? Give him Darby Allen. Give him Jungle Boy. Kind of give some upper mid card guys the rub and, and also allow MJF to feed wins off these guys and get more heat. Give him actual fan favorites. I don't think it's a bad idea. I I am still partial to Orange Cassidy being the next big thing, but Orange Cassidy is killing the business. Orange Cassidy is the fucking business. I don't think he's so goddamn entertaining. He is entertaining. He's not a wrestler. He's going to have to make some changes to be able to get to that level. I don't think he does. He he sometimes does silly shit, but he is always when when it's important, he wrestles smoother than anybody else in the ring and he's really fucking good at it. And he's very I think talented. He's like, you know, like everybody makes fun of like the, the lazy super kick thing that he does. But the other guy over there isn't like selling the super kick. He's looking at him going like, what is this dumb fucker doing? Right, but like the argument is, why isn't the other guy immediately just clotheslining the fuck out of him? Right. Yeah. It's if it's like you put him in the ring with Brock Lesnar in a real fight. What happens if he does that? <laughs> well, that that's but that's a story that you can tell is put him in there with MJF and he tries to to do that to MJF and MJF starts beating the shit out of him. He the would next have time to. they're in the ring together. Orange Cassidy takes it really seriously. Yeah. The only way that 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 pairing doesn't bury the entire rosters if mjf beats him in 20 seconds i'm sorry that's where i'm at with with that i could see a situation where you have the two of them have a dynamite match scheduled right and it's over in a minute and a half because mjf just beats a piss out of orange cassidy because cassidy starts to do his usual shit then you build up a pay-per-view match where cassidy comes out cuts some some honest to goodness promos about how, you know, he's got to take things seriously and he's going to take it seriously and blah, 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 blah. And then they can have the actual one-on-one where it's competitive and and so forth. The other problem with Orange Cassidy that we haven't really addressed is the guy is like 150 pounds. And I know we're kind of in a post-size wrestling and I know I'm like the Vince McMahon defender at this point, but I do think you have to have a air of believability like a minimum viability to your physicality in the ring right and like darby does a good job of being dangerous for his size i don't think orange cassidy conveys enough danger for me maybe maybe not i i think i've seen enough orange cassidy matches to feel pretty confident in in his ability oh look i love orange cassidy like he is fun and entertaining i'm just you get what I'm saying, right? I feel like he's more of a sideshow than a 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Any any last words on revolution? Are we ready to move on? Let's go ahead and move on. Uh, so raw. Uh, the thing that we were all dreading happening finally happened. Uh, Jay Uso made his choice, and he is siding with Jimmy. To no one's surprise. But the way they did it, I will be honest, makes me want to see Sammy versus the Usos. They fucking got to the point and made us all want to fucking see the match that we all said we didn't want to fucking see. But they got me there emotionally. And now I want to see see Sammy beat the piss out of Jay. Which a week ago I wouldn't have even thought was possible. I have to disagree with you on this. I think the segment illustrated one very important key detail to me, which is Jay siding with Sammy is so much better than Jay doing what we all expected him to do. And I'm my entire basis for my argument is that the crowd popped yeah. loud as they did in Montreal for that hug. And when he got kicked, they all just went, "Ugh, okay, boo. It, it sound, it was a, there was an audible, like lazy groan, not an aggressive fuck you kind of boo. The kind of thing that, you know, at this point in the business, only MJF can get that kind of heat. They weren't able to capture it because we all expected this to happen. They should have doubled down on the good. I like the good storyline of Jay siding face because this storyline has been going on for so long and at every turn the bad guys keep getting the one up and really you gotta double down on the faces for once because they're you just it's like getting hit over the head with the shovel over and over again eventually you just kind of get bored how many times have we seen roman win how many times has somebody else joined the bloodline do you you gotta double down now on these other things. And when, as soon as Jay hugged Sammy and people thought that's where they were going, the crowd went fucking crazy because it was finally something new. And then they fucking flipped it immediately. That pop for the hug was as loud as the pop when Sammy hit Roman. It was that loud. There was still a sizable pop for the kick. Uh, But you're right. There was a moment where it felt like the air was let out of the room. But not not to the levels we've seen of like Undertaker's streak being beaten and shit like that. I think they look, this isn't the outcome I wanted at all, because now we know this is setting up for the, the tag match at Mania. But I, I, I still have hope that ultimately the bloodline story started with Roman and Jay, and it's gonna end with Roman and Jay. Um, there were some rumors that came out today that they are planning on a solo versus Roman match later this year, which obviously implies that the, there's a blowing up of the bloodline. I, I, you know, I got to wonder if maybe after Sammy and KO beat the Usos, if Jimmy starts taking a hard look at himself, you know, I could see us. And I think we talked about this once or a few mo- uh, weeks ago when we were fantasy booking, Jay lose, you know, the Usos lose. Roman is like, what the fuck, guys? You know, night one, they lose. So night two, Roman's got to defend his belt. And he's like, what the fuck? 
you make us look like shit makes Jay feel bad. Jay starts reconsidering his life choices again. I think it's stupid because Jay had already come fucking full circle, but maybe we still get to that point. And to be fair, maybe Sammy still gets another stab at Roman or another stab at the title down the road. Cause it looks like Roman ain't losing them at mania. Like buckle up motherfuckers. We're still on the Roman Reigns train for at least a while longer. I think that's all that's all conjecture to try and make it a bigger surprise when he loses. I I'll, I'll bet you whatever amount of money you want right now Cody's winning at Mania. I feel like that's all intentional leaks. I also think that if Roman's keeping the belts, that's really what they're going with. All that speaks to is that they had lightning in a bottle and they realized, oh, you know what? We probably fucked up. And now if we go with the Cody storyline, we're going to realize a, you know, 10 years from now we fucked up. So we need to come up with something better at, at the end of the day. I think triple H is playing with his wrestler wrestling toys and he's, <laughs> he came up with a plan and he's not listening. We like, it's frustrating to watch and He's right that they can make a call whenever they want. How do you not hear the crowd in Montreal or last night and go, hmm, maybe we're not doing the storyline right? Because every time we do the, the, every time we take the next big step, the, the crowd seems bored. I think two things can be true at the same time. That one, they made the wrong call here, but two, Sami Zayn's going to come out looking like a million bucks one way or the other. Like, I don't think ultimately it matters if Sammy and, and Jay are together or if it's Sammy and KO. I think Sammy's going to be the star of Mania Night One. Um, I think the real tragedy here is what this is doing to undercut Jay. And Matt, you said this earlier. If, if he is to turn on the bloodline after this, he's going to look stupid. Like, ultimately, he had a lot of momentum and he had character. And they kind of threw that out. They threw the baby out with the bathwater on this one. And now he's basically, there's nothing distinguishing him from Jimmy at this point. Um, There's no reason to go to a J Roman match because there's just no compelling storytelling there now. I mean, he he sort of, he picked his side. And I think that's a real tragedy for Jay because I feel like they actually had something with him. Um on the solo front, I think this just points to WWE's inability to uh, get out of their own way. Solo is not good. I'm sorry. He's just not as good as Jimmy or Jay. Um, and for them to think that Solo is going to be the breakout star of this uh, faction goes to show how out of touch uh, Triple H really is, honestly. Because, you know, if you look at this objectively, if you've never watched wrestling, and you just start tuning in two months ago, um, you would say, you know, I want Jay to beat Roman, <laughs> right? Like, if, if, if any of the guys in the bloodline other than Sammy, it's like, that's the one I want. But now they're going to go with Solo. For, for what reason? Because he's fat? He's not even bigger than either of the Usos, but he's the powerhouse. I don't understand. I don't think Solo it. would... Okay, yeah. I don't think Solo would even be beating Roman. It, from what I'm hearing, no, they just want to. It's a star-making thing for him, though. Yeah, to get a rub with Roman. 
they just they don't plan on anyone beating Roman anytime soon. And so the question becomes, if not now, if not Sammy, if not Cody, if not Jay, who the fuck? It's going to be Cody. Just down the line? Well, no, it's going to be Cody at Mania. Think about what you're saying, and you start to realize that it has to be Cody at Mania. Like, I, like I understand where the rumors are, but when you really think about it, Matt, and you just laid out, if not Sammy, if not Cody, then who? It becomes obvious it is Cody and it is at Mania. Yeah, I'm going to fantasy book this situation right now. Uh, Matt was pretty close when he said, you know, Usos are going to lose their titles and Roman's going to be like, what the fuck, guys? Now, I, I, you know, I got to defend the bloodline here because you guys lost your fucking belt. Roman's going to lose his titles. And then uh, Monday Night Raw, not after Mania, the bloodline's going to come out and he's going to blame it on the Usos. Maybe he even blames it on Jay because of the Sammy situation. And maybe that's when we start getting the the seeds sown there for the blow up. But ultimately, they're going to pick the the obvious choice because every single thing about WrestleMania, other than a couple of the matches that got flipped because certain people didn't want to do business with other people, everything is exactly what Dave Meltzer predicted. So you can, you know, some of these backstage people can talk all the shit they want about Dave Meltzer, but he had these predictions in a while ago. WWE has not shifted anything at all. They went exactly with what we all expected them to and what was reported. And even though the fans were making it very clear that they wanted something different, WWE did not take the time to listen and make any adjustments. They're just going with what they want to go with. And I'll say this about listening to the fans. WWE's job is not to listen to the fans and then react to what the fans want. What their job is, is to anticipate what the fans want and like book into that, right? So it's not to like, oh, we have this plan, the fans don't like it, let's change it all up. It's just have a better plan in the first place. I think is sometimes that gets lost here, right? Like in the Attitude Era, you didn't have guys like, oh, we're they're turning on Stone Cold, we need to turn him heel now, you know? It's, they just had, you know, better intuition on how to use guys. I agree, but then we're coming up on a really big WrestleMania. The way they're pitching it is the biggest WrestleMania of all time. Every year is the biggest WrestleMania of all time. Always is. Always is. Yeah, and yet, they didn't think, hey, maybe let's call an audible here. If you, if, okay, if you look back, you know, the last, let's look at the decade of WrestleMania, you know, all the way back from 30, all of the biggest moments that all the fans talk about and remember are all the times that they called an audible, whether it was Brian, Kofi Mania, Becky, don't forget, Becky was not who they wanted to push. They were going for Charlotte and Ronda. And they, they swapped, right. swapped in Becky. We always remember that stuff. All the audibles are the things we remember because it's the times that the fans actually got something that was really, really good. And in every time they years. think about all the Ro- Roman main events where it's just kind of like you don't really think about it because it was what they had planned and it would just kind of went shitty. Right. Oh, yeah. Seth Rollins. Another big moment that where they called an audible and that's the thing you remember. <laughs> and Andrew, you're right. 
but only in the context of recent years. There was a time where they actually just did long-term booking that the fans wanted to see from the game. Yeah, because the fans wanted to see it. My point is, they had an opportunity to call the Audible and make the big moment that we know would work because every time they have done it in the last decade, it's worked, and they didn't do it. They're doubling down this year, which is fine. We're, we talk. There are moments in the last decade where they did call the Audible, and it was awesome. But how is it that no matter how many years pass, they don't rec- they they still will go with the predictable, boring storyline? Like, I know you can't always call audibles all the time or. But it's ingrained in the nature of WWE at this point. I mean, and look, I called this when Triple H took over and everybody was so excited. It's nothing has changed. Yeah, he's playing it safe. So, like, at a certain point, we can't get too upset about this because we've known all along how this was going to play out. Like, I understand your frustration and I'm not trying to discount it at all. Like, I'm, I'm acknowledging you, goddammit. Um, but I also think that at a certain point, we just have to appreciate the things we appreciate and let the things go that we don't appreciate. That's why I gave all my roses to MJF earlier. Now, since we're talking about Raw, one thing I did appreciate was the very predictable, but actually so far very good John Cena-Austin Theory matchup yes, that they're yeah, doing much yeah the the promo that they cut was fantastic now i will argue that cena was kind of burying austin theory a little bit but i can see how austin theory if he if you know the theory's going over there's no way he's not. yeah but if they thought this through well i could see him getting some good rebuttals in eventually mm-hmm. but Cena coming out looking like a fucking star right now. I think it's going to be entertaining, Andrew, but it's going to be entertaining for the reason you just said that Cena's just going to eat theory up time and time again. It's what Cena does really well. I do think if their goal is to make Austin Theory a star, this is going to end up being a mistake. I do think I'm going to very much enjoy watching this, though. I think the thing that saves Austin Theory is they have a fucking classic match. And the question is, is can Does Cena, Cena still have a classic like in him? Because yeah. I'm not sure Austin Theory is the man who's carrying John Cena to a classic. Austin no. Theory doesn't strike me as The Rock in 2001, you know? No, not at all. Austin Theory's having great matches because he's fighting Johnny Gargano and Seth Rollins every week. You know who would have been a great Cena opponent? Is MJF. <laughs> Like, if you ask what's next for MJF, Cena would have been the perfect guy up next for MJF. Of course. See you in 2024, Alec. Right. (laughs) Look, I mean, it's well documented. I'm not a theory guy. Like I said, I'll acknowledge that this segment was entertaining, but it just reaffirms for me that, like, when you see Cena in the ring, it's like he's the measuring stick. It's like, uh uh-oh, this guy's not measuring up. That's kind of my feeling. Yeah, uh, if we're being honest, when I was watching that, I was like thinking about what Austin Theory could rebuttal with. And I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think my promo would have been better than whatever the fuck he said. There's something about John Cena's bald spot or whatever, which is kind of funny. But given that Cena basically shit all over his career, 
It's like you you can't go for you can't go for the fucking bald spot joke after Cena basically said that you're an embarrassment and you're not at my level. Imagine how much mm. more mage this would have been if it was Montez Ford versus uh, Cena? Cena or Damian Priest or like coming out of the elimination chamber. I sort of felt like those two were like the guys I wanted to see in theory spot yeah, instead of yeah, theory. but okay, but theory in theory. Theory versus Cena is a big deal. Or even better, Rollins. Rollins deserves to... I think Rollins and Cena would have been a lot of fun, too, for the U.S. title. But we've had Rollins versus Cena. On a on a stage like that? At Rumble, at least. Rumble, SummerSlam. Almost every stage except WrestleMania. <laughs> Hell, I would have loved Cena and KO going back at it. It could have been fun. Look, I just think there's better uses of Cena than like putting him with Austin way too soon theory or Austin in theory. I've got a new nickname. He's Austin in theory. Yeah. In theory, he works just not in practice. That Well, that's the thing is I think he's good and I do. I'm starting to come around on him, but John Cena's promo was a little too close to home in terms of like theory is not ready he isn't there are just other guys that are better more entertaining have well developed characters theory is where he's at because he was handpicked to be in that spot this is you know a classic old school john cena classic old school roman reigns situation where they handpick a guy yeah it's because he's jacked and has blue eyes yeah like let's call a spade a spade they looked at him and they said, that's going to be our guy. And no matter how much it's not working, they don't slow him down and give him time to develop. They just keep pushing him further and further. And he still needs more time. He really doesn't have a well-rounded, discernible character other than he's got the title now and he's seemingly flashing his paychecks on expensive shit that like we know, like, OK, you don't have any savings then, pal, like. We know how much wrestlers make. You're the U.S. champion. You're not making millions. Like, it's just a bad gimmick because we know how this works. We it, It's not the 90s anymore. I think part of it is his gimmick is he's a Gen Z, um, which is really novel to a lot of the decision makers in WWE. But for us younger people, you just he's a dime a dozen. Like, I know a lot of people like Austin Theory. So... I feel like maybe they're sort of like his character's like a novel idea internally and they feel like it's I've never seen anything like this. They're not used to having anybody in their 20s working there. Maybe. Yeah, because Triple H's house is full of indie guys that should have gotten their big break a decade ago. Um, but Raw, Raw in general was fine. I thought uh, I did like the the new pairing of Carmella and Chelsea green. I think that's going to be a good, good thing for both of them. Uh, I'm confused a bit by the Oscar Bianca thing, right? Like Bianca or Oscar came out and kind of saved Bianca from beatdown, And then they kind of had that weird pseudo stare down, but like last week they did it. And Bianca was kind of like, Oh, this bitch. And then this time they were, she was kind of like, Oh, this bitch. And I'm like, what? Like what's what last week you were kind of like getting pissed off at Oscar this week. You were kind of like, Oh no, I'm not pissed at her anymore. 
Like I, I, I'm, I'm confused at where they're trying to go with the build for this. They don't know. That's why yeah, they're doing the, that. It's the drizzling shit. <laughs> That's where this they're is, trying to go. They, they have a good pairing, and they didn't get a single person to sit down and do their fucking job and write the story for this. I'm sh- I. I know that it's easy to to fucking play armchair quarterback with you know wrestling booking, but. Honestly, like if we all closed our eyes for about 30 seconds, we could come up with some kind of discernible story. And, you know, surely somebody on their fucking payroll can write a goddamn script for the their segments. It's weird that there just isn't anything in particular going on. They're just doing whatever to fill the time right now. I think part of the problem is uh, Bianca Belair's bit of a charisma vacuum. I, I, th- I don't remember exactly when I made the switch, but I... You guys can look it up. It's it's on the podcast. I'm officially out on Bianca. She is boring, and I feel like that's going to make this inherently boring. So there may be good writing. Who knows? I just don't believe anything she says ever. It's never compelling. I think my issue with Bianca, I I, I disagree that she's a charisma vacuum. I, I don't think it was that harsh, she is necessarily. She's not I, entertaining me. She's not entertaining because there just isn't any reasonable threat to her like she she says what she says and you kind of don't believe it but she does win all the time because they make her win so you're like well i guess she is and then that's kind of that that's it oscar feels like a reasonable threat but hey like why was bianca wrestling to last night why were why aren't we seeing oscar tear carmella apart to build up the threat of Asuka to Bianca. Why Why did Asuka come out in fucking street clothes and stare her down? It feels backwards to what I feel like we should... We already know how good Bianca is because they've been telling us for two fucking years straight. So tell me how good Asuka is because she just got back. Well, Andrew, the problem is there's nobody to tell you because neither one of them can talk. You have two people who can't talk in the angle. So who's going to tell you... Why you need Oscar, to care about Oscar the match. doesn't need to talk. Let her fight. Let her fight Carmella and beat the shit out of her. Somebody still has to sell the match, though. Someone has to sell the angle. Who's going to sell it? Both of them need managers, honestly. We need more female managers in the women's division. Well, it's weird that we don't have a situation. Oscar should I, I be mean, a Paul Heyman guy. That would sell the fucking angle. We, we say that all the time. They... They will only they will never do the Paul Heyman has multiple clients thing. Sure, as but you understand what I thought saying. that that would have been cool. I agree. Yes. Let's move on. It's raw. Yeah, it was raw. Uh, let's continue to revisit the uh, the Hall of Fame. Uh, so last week we went through the first handful of classes. So this time we are up to 2006. Uh, this year's class, I feel like there's a lot of people we're going to immediately move on and go to the next guy because these are instant fucking Hall of Famers no matter what criteria. Let's jump in with the biggest one, Bret Hart. Potentially the greatest of all time. We we can move on. (laughs) Eddie Guerrero. But honestly, borderline? Because his career was cut short? Excuse me? 
No, I think I, I agree with Alec. He unfortunately lacks the accolades that you would expect in a Hall of Famer, but his influence is just so damn great it puts him over the line. Yeah, I think him going in now would make a lot of sense. I think him going in at the time, it's obvious why they did yeah. it, but right. Um, Vern Gagne. Yeah, I think so. I feel like this is one of the first old timers that I'm familiar with intimately. Vern ran the AWA, which was one of WWE's big competitors in the Northeast-ish. He trained a lot of guys that became Hall of Famers. Uh, Yeah, uh, to me, he's instantly in. He's got a career spanning all the way back to the 50s with NWA. So, I mean, we don't even... It just feels like going back to the documentary analogy, he might be one of the first guys that gets brought up. <laughs> yeah. Even if he, we don't say a lot about him, he's going to be like, you know, part of the initial foundation of modern yeah, professional it, it, wrestling. It's impossible to go maybe 20 minutes without him featuring. It's like, here's Ric Flair. By the way, here's Vern Gagne real quick. Like, you know, you have real to. Real quick. Um, all right, so Ganya's in. Uh, Sensational Sherry in. Yeah, absolutely. Laid the groundwork for female managers, not valet, right? That was the distinction between her and a Miss Elizabeth, was that she was a fucking manager. And she was a fucking wrestler and could beat the shit out of people. A hell of a talker, too. Like, yes. one of the best on the stick. Couldn't agree more. And she comes up so often in modern times, like whatever argument you could make about her accolades and the amount of time that she was in the business is completely irrelevant to the, you know, the impact that she had long term. It's a shame we lost her when we did. Could you imagine her an older Sherry hanging around now, just popping up every now and then? She'd be a Good hell of Lord. a manager for Bianca. Have someone who can actually fucking yeah. talk and sell a story. Jesus Christ. She would only be 65. Actually, she'd be a hell of a manager for Asuka. Yeah, whoever. Any of the women yeah. who are good in the ring can't talk. Uh, speaking of talking, Mean Gene Okerlund. I think if you're going to have announcers slash commentators, fucking, you got to have Mean Gene. Again, can't tell the story of wrestling without him. He's in yeah. half of the pictures. <laughs> if, yeah. if you had a, I, I don't, I hate the Mount Rushmore concept and the whole phrase of it. But if you had one for backstage people, announcers, he, he is one of them. For sure. He's probably the first one. Okay, now we get into some more of the, the questionables. The Blackjacks. Blackjack Lanza and Blackjack Mulligan. I I like them. I've seen some of their stuff. I mean, they were some of those old school, the kind of guys that Alec wishes we had more of now. Big dudes who lived the gimmick. They were tough. They beat the shit out of you. But what's their lasting legacy that qualifies them for Hall of Fame? I think their legacy goes back to the foundation that they set for modern tag team wrestling. Uh, part of my basis for I'm, I'm going to argue, yes, that yeah. argument stems heavily on the fact that they are in the official professional wrestling hall of fame. 
And that one I know is taken very seriously. So I, I just... The, on that alone and just knowing how much they come up, I, you could argue that they wouldn't come up in a professional wrestling documentary that was circumventing all the history. But if you had to do one for tag teams, f- for sure they're going to come up. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I think if you're going to have tag teams, then yeah. Okay. I think so a certain, I think a certain, level has to be established now, they when it are comes the to teams. bar probably like i think if you're any less accomplished than them it's you're not in it's gonna be tough yeah 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 because i i would argue that most of the i think actually the entire basis for their inclusion is the impact that they had being such an old school team not necessarily you know tons and tons of accolades and you know highlights and stuff that we see today it's it's more of a you know setting the the tone setting the bar so they that really does mean, like they are the bar for the whole thing as well uh this next one y'all are probably gonna have to convince me uh tony atlas oh i, I i'm not interested yeah in i'm not you. i'm not gonna convince you either <laughs> okay i'm not look i'm again i go back to the whole thing of at this point, we assume everybody who's in the WWE Hall of Fame today is rechristened a WWE legend. Does Tony Atlas meet that criteria to be a legend? Sure. 100%. I mean, he has an absurd amount of accolades. I don't know if you know this or not. He's won world titles in like every fucking promotion ever. Sure. To be fair, a lot of the old guys from the 70s and 80s when they went to the indies in the 90s and 2000s, one fucking world titles because it's what you did. I mean, he's, he's been all over the place. I just don't know that he is integral to the story of pro wrestling. You could tell the story of professional wrestling. And I don't, I don't know in a two hour documentary, would you hit on Tony Atlas other than the footnote of, and Tony Atlas was a tag team champion, you know, yeah, I, I mean, maybe we're overlooking stuff with him, but I am surprised that his inclusion came so early in the Hall of Fame's lifetime. Yeah, he really feels WWE. like a bottom feeder kind of pick, right? I mean, you know what I, I mean? Like, like a, we're it, running it, out of guys and we need a legend to put in. Yeah, I, I would say that he's just a step below the line, but I feel like the last episode we established that like Sergeant Slaughter is probably the, the lowest that you can get in with, and I don't think that he hits that at all. Yeah, Sergeant Slaughter's immensely more consequential to the business than Tony Atlas. He main evented a WrestleMania. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Atlas is out. The next one is from the celebrity wing, so I already know this guy's out. Uh, William the Refrigerator Perry. Yeah, I don't even know who the fuck that is now. As a celebrity, he is ba- basically not even a celebrity. Bad look, Andrew. He was from the Bears, the the '85 Chicago Bears, uh, that won the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, so like I, I can see that. I just, I just don't time. like. No, like he made sense contemporaneously to have him in WrestleMania at the time and and whatever. But to put him in the in the Hall of Fame, like the fuck, he, dude wrestled like one time, I think maybe twice, like 
why. Now, we will get to a specific football player who actually has more of a claim. Um, but yeah, I think this one, no. All right. So let's move on to the class of 2007. Uh, again, a lot of heavy hitters in this one. This one's going to be, I think there's only going to be like one or two no's. Uh, the first is uh, American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Instant in. Yeah. He should be in twice. Once as a wrestler and once as, you know, having a huge impact backstage. Like, he's Fuck just... It. Put him in three times. Put him in once as the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Put him in twice as the American Dream, the polka dotted fucking wearing Dusty Rhodes. And the third time is the fucking guy that ran NXT Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, I think unironically, Andrew's right. He is probably a two-time Hall of Famer. Like, he actually is a Hall as of a, Famer. As an individual, end. too, not as because yeah. of groups. He's, no, he's, in, he's a that, Hall of Famer as a performer and as a backstage person. Yeah. He, his accolades in both categories. I mean, shit. We're saying as a backstage person, I was bringing it up because of all the training and coaching, but we're not even talking about his impact as like a booker. I mean, he, he revolutionized <laughs> wrestling in basically every single category. Yeah. There might not be anybody with more just broad impact in, in pro wrestling who did uh, basically every single individual little thing and impacted it as he may have he taken did. it a step too far there. I mean, he's certainly on the Mount Rushmore of wrestling impact, but I mean, well, I just mean in terms Vince of McMahon. each, each <laughs> no, but like every different category, that's, right, that's yeah, my point his, his impact in his impact in each category is probably higher on average than anybody else. I get what you're saying about Vince, but Vince didn't hit wrestling the same way that Dusty did. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Vince is a bigger heel than Dusty ever was. Oh, boy. All right, look, Dusty's <laughs> sure. in, so there's no arguing that. Yeah. Uh, next is um, Kurt Hennig, Mr. Perfect. I, again, yes. This one is actually really he's, close. He's closer. I think he's in, but he's closer than you would think. Can we have the, the argument real quick? Well, So here's the deal. To me, the reason he's in is he was one of the first guys that was a little bit smaller, that wrestled the technical style that is popular today, right? Him and Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, they were that generation that brought that into the I mainstream. I don't think you can put him in with Bret Hart and Shawn in that regard because he's about two, three inches bigger than both those guys. Like, but Hennig is actually huge. But he's not as big as a Hulk Hogan. He did work or... a more athletic style. Mm-hmm. But he didn't work small. No, he definitely didn't work small. But he was a slightly smaller guy. Not from height-wise, just a build-wise. But but again, he brought in that, that technical style. You can't talk about the classic matches that happened in the late 80s, early 90s without at some point bringing up fucking Mr. Perfect. I... I kind of disagree here. I feel like he's piggybacking off of the work that a Ric Flair or a Macho Man put in. Like, I don't think he really is paving the way for anyone. That's kind of the argument you're making, right? Is that he's paving the way for other guys who want to work that way. And I, I don't think that's true. I I agree with Matt here. I think that his accolades in ring fall a little short, but his lasting legacy and impact is enough to get him in. 
So he's definitely top two, maybe three guys to never win a world title. So I think that means something, right? Yeah. Like if you're on that short list, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to talk about wrestling, he's involved in the conversation just from that standpoint. Also, he won almost every other title. Yeah. Right. Which is why it's so obvious that he should have been a world champion. He's one of the guys that made the IC title known as the workhorse belt. That's a great argument. Now you're cooking with gas. Yeah. I mean, that. okay, I guess when I was talking about all the technical stuff, I should have prefaced it with he helped put the IC title on the map. As that belt, as the belt for those guys. He's one of the first great... Um, well, no, not even. He is great in the sense that there's not a lot of guys who could work and talk at that time. Like, he kind of had mm. all facets covered. Character, microphone. I mean, he was a great announcer, too. Yeah. Um, he is undoubtedly a Hall of Fame talent. I just don't know, because of the injuries and, and some other stuff, if he had enough accomplishment in the ring to yes. me he is he's the line i just see the new line side. instead of slaughter because to we me we did put slaughter in huh we put slaughter in to me but slaughter I, might I have put, ended a, a wrestlemania okay but to me the other accomplishments that perfect had i think they're on the same footing you're i'm going to put him in i do agree and i think what sells me is the work he did with the IC title. I just want to emphasize that I don't feel like he changed the game. I feel like he followed in the footsteps, like I said, of guys like Steamboat and Savage. Um, I don't think he took things to the next level the way Bret Hart did. Like I think Bret Hart took what those guys did, and it's like, this is we're, we're going to get even more technical. But Hennig was great. No argument there. Hennig is in... Uh, Jerry the King Lawler. Look, from an in-ring yeah. perspective, Lawler's... I mean... If you're putting Hennig Lawler's, in, I think he's in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I don't think you put Lawler in purely for in-ring. You put him in there for his contributions to the business as a whole, whether that's at running Memphis, whether that's um, being an announcer, right? He's just been around for so long and impacted different things, not to the level of a, of a dusty roads, but he's, he's touched a bunch of different things and think about it. If you're trying to tell the story of professional wrestling, you're going to talk about Jerry Lawler, right? There's yeah. No yeah because you're going to get to the part where you talk about each individual territory and you're going to be like over in Memphis, you had Jerry Lawler. Like you're going to get right. that much. <laughs> no, I At think least. Lawler. If, yeah. yeah he's, he's a no brainer hall of famer. Like when you frame the conversation in terms of like everything that he's done for the business, it's it's a no brainer. He's not only is he in the official professional wrestling hall of fame, he is a part of the museum for his work. Just to throw that out there. His accolades are actually incredibly extensive in the territories of you guys didn't. No, he's know. actually a tier one Hall of Famer. I, I think the more we talk about it, it's like he's he he's in front and center Hall of Famer, like headline a class kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, next, we have his compatriot Jim Ross. Again, from an announcer perspective, absolutely. But then you look at his backstage accomplishments, running. I mean, being 
part of the creative team for a little bit running talent relations. The dude had his hands in so many different things over the years. He's found a lot of stars too. Yeah, the amount of Hall of Famers that he eyeballed who weren't, some of them weren't even wrestlers yet. And he went, that's the next big thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Literally. Yeah. Because Jim Ross knew where to find talent. Yeah. He only had a couple Jack Swagger types. (laughs) Fuck. Um, All right. Well, now we're moving to the Jack Swagger category here. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, yeah. I think a for sure Hall of Famer. Yeah, no. Again, if you're telling the story of... I don't want to say early professional wrestling. He's but one of the, the 60s, first great 70s. wrestlers. Yeah. And he trained a lot of dudes too, didn't he? I don't know. I just feel like, you know, for putting in Buddy Rogers and guys like that, he's, you know, it's Nick Bockwinkle. Right. Um. Okay, so here's a... Mm, uh, the Sheik. The the original Sheik, Sheik. but the original Sheik. Now, one of his things was obviously getting Sabu, his nephew, involved in the industry. But, you know, what What does that mean in terms of impact? Right. Look, Sabu's great. And and, and, I mean, RVD is probably a better tip of the cap in terms of breaking guys in. Um, I know the Sheik trained a lot of guys, but like I don't know who. Andrew, maybe you want to check with your sources. Yo, did she? What was Sheik's in-ring career like? Too. So maybe here's that the predates thing. me it, to the. It predates, um, our parents. <laughs> Sheik's first match is in January of 1947. Okay, if he's wrestling that long ago, I think you have to. How can we say he's not a Hall of Famer? He, we don't know. He was portraying a foreign character in the United States for like a lifetime. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, he's got a huge. I, this one is tricky. It, it's one of those people that would be hard to explain to a modern audience to get them to understand what, like, he's a the pioneer of hardcore wrestling, which I would argue is important enough to matter. I mean, he's one of those guys that that sort of established what wrestling could be in terms of variety. Well, if he's playing a foreign villain in the 40s, I mean, he's a pioneer of that then, too. Correct. Sure. Um, this is why you need a Hall of Fame, by the way, is to be able to explain guys like this to the younger generation. So in the later part of his career, so 1992, um, Sheik had a fire death match with Sabu against Onita and Tarzan Goto, where the ropes were replaced with flaming barbed wire. Um, the Sheik got third degree burns and went into a coma, nearly dying. How a year and a half he? later, he had a run in ECW. So, I mean, like, like I had to be pushing seventy, right? If he uh, started wrestling in nineteen forty-seven, yeah, he would have been in his six late sixties at that point. 
He passed away in January of 2003 at 76. 76. That gets so you 92. Yeah, so he would have been mid-60s. That's nuts. I say we keep him in. I I have a hard time booting out these guys whose career I have no reason to justify decades. Yeah, I have no reason to justify taking him out. There's at least a dozen, maybe a little bit more of these pillars of superstars. Like you could build a roster of guys prior to the, like the 80s, maybe even prior to the 70s that set foundational traits of what professional wrestling is and what it looks like and he's definitely on the list and so i think it's hard to just not include them uh next we got mr fuji which uh, for me i mostly know him as yokozuna's manager um i know he had an in-ring career as well i'm just not familiar with it uh but you know he started wrestling in 1962 in Hawaii um, and then came to the WWF or WWWF in 1972. Um, then worked the territories, eventually found his way back to WWF in the eighties and became a manager. You know, he managed demolition, managed uh, Yokozuna, etc. As far as managers go, this one's actually kind of a, tougher one because I think the criteria to get in as a manager has to be stiffer than the criteria as a wrestler right because there's just less of them but he Um, was a wrestler right but I don't think his wrestling is getting him in unless you can pull up something to justify that I think it's it's his run as a manager that we're really evaluating here right I would say mostly he's certainly not Bobby Heenan or you know even Paul Heyman I no I don't know man this this is a a borderline one for me he's got a lot of tag title wins in various territories and then um looks like a heavyweight championship from NWA in the British Commonwealth and then uh, NWA Hawaii tag title, NWA United States heavyweight championship. Um, so lots of accolades here, but it feels definitely, oh, five-time tag team champion in WWE. At the time, WWWF. So territory, though. I mean, yeah, I... I feel like he's not a one percenter, which is kind of, for me, the threshold. I don't know if he's integral to the story of professional wrestling. He's a legend. So is he a Hall of Famer? I'm going to tell you all the story of uh, one of... So Mr. Fuji was well known as a ripper, almost to a fault. Uh, he had some very mean spirited ribs. Um, one in particular, this is one that I remembered hearing about a long time ago. Uh, so I just pulled it up cause I wanted to verify it. Uh, he pulled a rib on his tag partner, Saito. Uh, they had a show to go to, and this was back before map quest and all that stuff. And so Fuji decided, you know, he was going to 
give he would give directions to Saito. He made it make them take eight hours to get to the building. Uh, at the end of the night, Fuji uh, said, hey, hey, I'll drive home. Since you drove us here, I'll drive us back. They got back in 20 minutes. Fuji spent an entire day making his tag partner drive all over the fucking place as a fucking rib. So I guess we shouldn't include him in the Hall of Fame then. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that sounds really shitty your mind or not. If anybody ever made me drive for eight hours for no reason, I might kill them with my bare hands. That might be one of my least favorite things to figuratively. Do. You mean? No, Allegedly. I would literally kill them. Oh boy! I don't think you're allowed to say that. That's why I tried to save you with the figuratively. Well, nobody has literally made me drive for eight hours, so we're fine. In a legal sense. I don't think we put Fuji in. I'm fine with him not being in. I haven't heard any compelling arguments that he should be. Um, all right, next we got the final one for this group is uh, the Wild Samoans, uh, Fonseca. I think, yes, from the perspective of they were, again, they were the foreign, they played the foreign menace, you know, heels and whatever. But they were one of those groups that they stuck out like a sore thumb because they were different from everybody else. And obviously today we have the Samoan dynasty, which is a direct result of the fucking the wild Samoans. Yeah, and if we're taking them as a tag team and, and going off of the 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 line for tag teams, I think that they're actually above the Blackjacks in this case. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So I, I feel like it, we included them. I've, the Wild Samoans definitely need to be included. I'll say this too about the Wild Samoans. We've used this term a few times where it's like, oh, this guy's a legend. I think they're actually so legendary that they are Hall of Famers because of how legendary they are, right? Like you hear so many stories about how tough they are. And like, I feel like their reputation precedes them in a way that makes them hall of famers without having to even do any research into the actual accolades. Yeah. I like that explanation, Alec, that they are so legendary that they have to be in the hall of fame. I think that fits them. Cool. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Um, please remember to like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook, such good shit pod. Uh, subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And uh, email us at such good shit pal at gmail.com. I will also point out that last week I said that the first person to tweet us, and I think it was the hashtag such good shit. Uh, I would send them something. Yeah, none of you motherfuckers did. So I'm going to up the ante. Um, this time, I you will get the free wrestling thing. And on top of that, you also get a signed uh, card from us. We will sign something. And uh, you'll get that as well. I don't know how much our autographs are worth. I imagine not much. But... Uh, First person to tweet at us and use the hashtag such good shit, you get something. 
Do we have any parting words before we go? Uh, apologies to the child that was maimed by MJF. I don't know that he was maimed. Eh, from a certain point of view. I don't know that that's the definition of that word. There were a few words. Which word? Point of point view? Maimed. Maimed. Oh. What do you think maimed means? <laughs>